This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. Nehemiah is where we're at. Nehemiah, we are in the 10th week of the book of Nehemiah, and I have to tell you, I have to tell you, we are going to be closing out Nehemiah within the next two weeks. There's a possibility we're closing out Nehemiah next Sunday, but we are for sure closing out Nehemiah the Sunday after that, because I have a Christmas series that we're going to be doing, and so we will be, chapters 11 and 12, I'm going to go ahead and tell you in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 11 and 12 are a lot of name lists. Um, not that they're insignificant or unimportant. In fact, as I was studying for this sermon, I was meeting with Pastor Aaron this week, and I was going over my sermon with him and kind of explaining some things about it, and he goes, hey, actually look in chapter 11, and he, he actually picked out one of the names and linked it back to something that was really awesome. I'm not going to steal his thunder. He might use that at some point in time when he preaches. Um, but all that to say, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10 today, and I'm probably going to give you a flyby on 11 and 12, either at the end of today's message or the beginning of next Sunday's message, and then we'll let the Lord lead us as to whether it'll be one more week or two more weeks as I study. But Nehemiah chapter 10, the the title of our series is For the City. We know Nehemiah spent the first half of this book focused on rebuilding the physical city, the actual walls, the actual gates, the doors to put on those gates. They traveled um, months in in the desert to get back to the city of Jerusalem. They fought the opposition. But then after the walls and the gates are rebuilt, Nehemiah then goes into the rebuilding, what we said last week was the rebuilding of the people. They focused on God's word. In fact, they had God's word read to them for hours on end, literally just read to them. We need a a preacher to get up and do backflips on the stage to keep us awake sometimes. I'm with you. I get it. But they sat there for six hours at one point. And just listen to the Bible being read. Um, They had the Levites and others that were down there among the people. And if there was anyone who didn't understand what was being read from the word, those Levites and the people would help them understand. They would take them through it and give them the sense of what the Bible was saying. They worshipped Jesus together. They worshipped and they bowed down to God. Revival took place. And we studied that and we've talked about that. Last week we highlighted the vicious cycle that Nehemiah chapter 9 presented us. And that was the children of Israel went through the cycle all the time it seemed of God was incredibly good to them. And then those people would turn their backs on him in sin. And then God would show mercy to his people. He'd be very good to them. And they'd turn their backs on him in sin. If we wanted to really concise it make it very concise grace sin mercy grace sin mercy grace sin mercy and we talked a little bit about what we felt like was a new testament biblical look at sanctification last week and how we can try to break that cycle we'll never be perfect i hope you didn't take that from last week by the way we'll never be perfect Uh, But it was some, what I feel is New Testament guidance into breaking that vicious cycle. Today is simply from Nehemiah chapter 10. And the title of today's message is A Covenant with God. A Covenant with God. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll be there. In fact, if you want to turn first to Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to conclude with the end of Nehemiah 9. But as the chapter... 9 concludes, we see the leaders and those that were leading the prayer and declarations. They introduce a covenant that the Israelites will make with God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. This was a covenant that was not taken lightly. 
the leaders, I would say politically, maybe, the Levites and the priests. They confirmed the covenant. They sealed the covenant. This was an important contract, especially in the time that they were living in, especially in the Old Testament where the covenants were so incredibly important. This morning, can we consider the definition of a covenant? A covenant is a a mutual consent or agreement of two or more persons to do or to forbear some act or thing. A contract, stipulation. A covenant is created by deed and writing, sealed and executed. If you've been around the Bible much at all in your life, you've heard of covenants. Covenants are, are found throughout the Bible. In fact, uh, there were some very important covenants made in the Old Testament. Um, the first of which was the Noah covenant in Genesis chapter 9 with Noah. God promised in that covenant to never again destroy the earth with a flood. That was an unconditional covenant. It was a covenant that was granted no matter what. The covenant with Noah. In fact, today, every time that you and I see a rainbow, we should be reminded of God's covenant with Noah and his people to never again destroy the earth with a flood. There was then the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, that that nation would be led into the promised land and that God would bless the people through Abraham. But that covenant was conditional. Okay, the first covenant was given. The second covenant was conditional. What was it it conditioned upon? It was conditioned upon Abraham leaving his country and going, he didn't know. It was conditional upon him leaving and going to a place that God would show him later. So that covenant was a conditional covenant. Then we had the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19 through 24. This is where God promised to make the Israelites his chosen people. Once again, this was a conditional covenant and that the people must obey him in order for this covenant to be granted. Next, we have the Davidic covenant. I'm not going to belabor these, but the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that David's descendants would rule Israel forever. And we know this was due to David being in the direct lineage of Jesus. That was a granted covenant, an unconditional covenant. And then we have the new covenant. It's introduced in Jeremiah chapter 31. God promised to give his people a desire to follow him. And that he would be their forgiving savior. This covenant, the new covenant, all obviously pointing to to Christ. This was obviously a granted covenant. And these covenants were of utmost importance. The gravity and severity of these covenants were were literally life and death to the children of Israel. In our text this morning, we're going to look at a covenant that the children of Israel made to God. And then we're going to remember that these covenants were binding covenants, that they were serious covenants, that these covenants were confirmed by the leaders, by the Levites, and by the priests. These were not just wishes or I'm going to try to do this. These were things they were committing themselves to 110%. Can we pray together this morning? Heavenly Father, as we study this covenant that the children of Israel will make, God, I pray we would let this speak to us. And God, honestly, as we, as we approach Scripture the way we do, God, where we take the next chapter and the next verse and the next truth from God's Word and we expound upon it, God, I'm not sure that I would ever have come to Nehemiah chapter 10 and opened up Nehemiah chapter 10 and preached that message on a Sunday morning to a church. But God, we know your Word will never return void and we know that you have something important for us today. And God, I pray your word would shine through. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why would the children of Israel make a covenant such as we will see today? 
Why would the children of Israel make that covenant? And what would motivate them to make such a deal or to make such a commitment? I believe there are two answers to why the children of Israel would want to covenant with God. The first answer is because God had never one time broken his covenant to them. You see, they were willing to make a commitment to God because God had never broken his commitment to them. To simplify it, they were willing to go out on a limb for someone that they knew they could trust. The second reason, I believe, is because of God's lavish provision and his protection that he showed them during the rebuilding process. So God's reliability and then God's provision. Two reasons why I believe that these children of Israel were willing to make such a commitment and such a covenant that we're going to see this morning because of God's reliability and because of his provision. And can I say it this way in a quote that maybe will help you take it from here? God is worth our covenant promises because he is the God who has never broken his covenant to us. God is worthy or worth our covenant promises because he is the God who has never broken his covenant to us. But as I'm using this terminology, I'm sure you're becoming a little uncomfortable because we don't like making commitments. We don't like making, God forbid we use the word covenants. We don't like saying, hey, come, I'm, in, I'm behind the pulpit, right? So come heck or high water, like this is going to happen. We don't like making those commitments. We always like to give ourselves an out. And so we do things like, I'm going to do my best. Or my favorite, I'm going to try. And what I'm going to try really means is I have no plans of actually following through on this, but I want you off my back. Can we be real? And listen, we hear God's word preached and, and the Holy Spirit begins to work on us and we say, I really need to read God's word more. You know what? I need to commit to reading my Bible every day. That's what I need to do. I'm just going to make a commitment. There's not going to be a 24-hour period of time where the sun comes up and goes down. Daylight savings, uh, 5 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, it'll go down, so hurry up. But, um, but sun comes up, sun goes down. There's not a day goes by that I'm not going to open God's word and let God's word speak to me. I'm going to make it. Well, you know what? I mean, we're going on vacation in February. Disney countdown. For real. Um, it's going to be tough those days, I mean, because we're going to get up early. and oh. So I'll tell you what, God. I'll do my best. God, I'll try to read my Bible every day. And you know what that means? That really means that I might try, but that means that next week, if I don't, uh, and, and we, we are so casual. But can I, can I say today, as, as we're about to look in the specifics and go through this text, can I say today that we have a God who has covenanted with us? He has made a covenant with us and committed himself fully to us through Jesus Christ and the gospel and the grace that he showed to us on the cross. And is he not worthy of our commitment? Is he not worthy of a not I'm going to try, but I'm going to? Not a I'm going to try, but a I'm going to. Or I'm going to do my best, or I'm going to. Listen, the Holy Spirit helping me, the Holy Spirit leading me and guiding me and directing me, hey, I'm going to. Some of us are extremely committed to things that benefit us. We're extremely committed to things that make us money. We're extremely committed to things that help the world go around. We're extremely committed to certain things. But this morning, there could be no better benefit than the spiritual benefit of your walk with God. There could be no greater benefit than to be in perfect fellowship with your Creator God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we look this morning at the text and let's look at the specifics of this covenant that the children of Israel made in Nehemiah chapter 10. Number one, I want us to see this purity in the family. Purity in the family. Look at verse 30. Of chapter 10. Part of the covenant, we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. 
If I can, since we live in woke 2019, this may initially seem like a nationalistic or racial decision. Um, that the Jews were not going to intermarry with those that were not Jews. And if I can be very honest, there may be some of that in there. Old Testament Jews and what we have today are not necessarily apples to apples. So I'm not going to act like that maybe there wasn't a little bit of that in there. But I will say this. This was primarily, and by primarily I mean 99 plus percent, a spiritual decision. That had nothing to do with ethnicity per se. But that had everything to do with the children of Israel making a covenant with God that they would not marry anyone who did not worship the same God. They would not marry someone who did not worship the same true God. Paul taught, and we actually preached through it in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, about how marriage is about Christ and the church. In fact, Paul says that entire chapter is really about Christ and the church. We like to take it and apply it to marriage, but Paul says, I'm primarily trying to teach you about the church. And the best way I can teach you about the church is a husband and a wife relationship. And so we already preached through that, but Paul learned this parallel from the Old Testament where the relationship between God and his people, the children of Israel, was treated as a marriage. And if a man and his wife are not unified in worship of the same God, then how in the world could their marriage reflect the relationship of God and his people? That's just logical. Hey, listen, if we're not worshiping the same God together, then how in the world is the man supposed to uh, represent Jesus and the wife supposed to represent the followers of Jesus? And how are they supposed to represent the, the, the gospel if they're not worshiping the same God? It's extremely important this morning. Keep in mind, this commitment to purify within the families of Israel was not, listen to this, this was not a harshly imposed commandment put on them. Rather, the people of God willingly devoted themselves to God through this commitment to purity. This was not a new law that was put into place. This was a willful covenant that the children of Israel willfully drew up and willfully made to God. This would make both the Old and the New Testaments to warn us about marrying those who are unbelievers. And can I say this? I still believe that the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together. I still believe the Bible says that. You say, Josh, I'm single and I'm starting to date this person, but they're not a believer. Then I would tell you one of two things need to happen. That person falls under conviction of the Holy Spirit and they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Or number two, there's probably like boy band songs and like R&B songs. Is get another boyfriend, is that a song? If not, that needs to be one. I'm going to write it. All right. Um, then get another one. Because you don't want to start your covenant marriage relationship off with you worshiping Jesus Christ and that person being an unbeliever. Because scripture tells us here in the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament multiple times that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I could even make the application, and I won't, but I could, that we shouldn't go into business with those that would be an unbeliever, like financial business, like starting a business. I'm not going to say that. I'm just thinking I, I could say that. That's my personal belief. I'm not going to push my personal belief on you this morning. I'm just going to say I think I could make a biblical case for that. May I, apply, may I apply this to us today? We need to keep purity within our families, believers, unbelievers, can I apply this? The children of Israel and the church do not directly apply. You can't just look at the children of Israel in the Old Testament and say, okay, that's now the church in the New Testament. It's called replacement theology, and it's actually bad theology to read your Bible in. But I believe in, in, in many instances you can. And here's one. Can I say this in our church family? In our local body of believers, there needs to be doctrinal purity. There needs to be motivational purity, not by guilt, but by love of Jesus. There needs to be 
purity in our practice. There needs to be a constant uh, desire to repent of our sins as a church body. There needs to be purity in our relationships physically as well as socially, spiritually. Purity in the church. God, don't let our church be one that would quote-unquote intermarry with the world. God, don't let our church be one that would intermarry with sin and bring sin into this church and not let it be dealt with. And, and by the way, let me just say this. We do deal with sin in our church. Now, I'll tell you this. We don't deal with it up here. We deal with sin in our church. Um, we, we, and there, there's some other teaching that will come later on that at some point in time. But we deal with sin in our church. We want a pure church. We want to stand before God in holiness. We want to stand before God in purity. There needs to be purity. And God, this morning, may we come to you and purify our faults and purify our sins and purify the blemishes that sin has left on us and make us clean vessels and clean tools for your glory and for your honor and to be used by you. They wanted purity. They coveted. They made a commitment to purity. Hey, listen, we're not going to marry with those who don't believe in the same God we believe in. The second portion, there's three portions. The second portion of our text today of the covenant, the second part of the covenant is, is observance of Sabbath principles. Observance of Sabbath principles. And you might think you know where this is going and it might take you for a little turn. Get ready. Look at verse 31. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath. Or on a holy day. And we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. You remember the Sabbath from Ten Commandments? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? To keep it set apart? To keep it different than the other six days of the week? I believe there are Sabbath principles. In fact, um, I, I meet with a mentor every month. And the book he's told me to read, and I haven't read it yet, so I need to read it real quick, um, is a book called 24-6 instead of 24-7. It's a book on Sabbath. I haven't read it yet, so I'm not telling you to read it. Let me read it first, and I'll let you know if it's good or not. But the principle of the Sabbath is don't kill yourself seven days a week without taking some time for spiritual, emotional, physical rest. Okay, but that's not necessarily the exact thing they're talking about here. Did you read? Did you look at the text? It's not exactly what they were talking about we take a traditional sabbath in fact sunday has traditionally come into the sabbath for us if we want to look at it kind of a day of of rest in fact i know uh people when i was growing up people wouldn't do any yard work on sunday i don't necessarily condemn you if you do that um people wouldn't a lot of people my parents growing up that they wouldn't eat out on sunday and then they got liberal and started eating out on sunday um but uh but people used to not go out to eat on sunday people used to i mean the sunday used to kind of be that day that was set apart that you were going to go worship at church and you, you were going to go home and, and use it as a time of rest and i will say that my couch this afternoon with football on acting like i'm watching football but i'm really sleeping all right that will be some rest how many of you, Sunday afternoon, something about it, isn't it? There's like an hour or two in there where it's just like, I go into like deep. I go deep in my sleep. It's not, I, don't, I don't understand, but it, it's amazing. But the two elements that they highlight here in this covenant is not what you would typically think of as a Sabbath. The first part of the, this covenant about the Sabbath was that they would not do business on the Sabbath. They would not accept money on the Sabbath. The second part of the Sabbath covenant would be that they would not participate in the seventh year produce and the exacting of every debt, that they would wipe clean the seven year debts. This was especially difficult since every seven years debts would be wiped clean. So if Reed owed me, if Reed lent me money, and I owe, that's, that's be real, that's the way it would be. If Reed lent me money, and I owed Reed money, and I somehow could figure out a way to get around and get away from Reed for seven years, then the law would be after seven years, Reed would have to let go of that debt. You wouldn't do it, would you? You'd be coming after me, wouldn't you? You'd be knocking on my door. Exactly, I know. But they said that they would 
never collect upon that debt. They would have to let that debt go by faith. I think it's interesting that these Sabbath principles both affected their financial status. And they were willing to say, God, we're going to be pure. And God, we're willing to make some financial sacrifices. Hey, if someone comes up on the Sabbath day and wants to buy the eggs that we, that we have prepared, well, they're going to have to come back on a day that's not the Sabbath. And after seven years, if, if Tim owes me money after seven years, then he no longer owes me money. I think you might owe me lunch from a few years ago, but uh, we're coming up on that seven year. We need to make that right before I have to wipe it clean. But they, they, they would take the hit financially. And so that's a difficult covenant, by the way. If someone owes me money and it's been seven years, like, I'm sorry, like I'm coming knocking. If someone, especially in a business dealing where there maybe were signed contracts, owes me money, I mean, it's, you know, every good thing inside of me hold me back, but every good thing inside of me better be holding me back. Um, if someone comes up to me on a Sunday and says, hey, Josh, uh, if, you'll, if you'll go over there and, and sweep that up real quick, I'll give you $5,000, I'd have a hard time saying... Sorry, bro, it's Sunday. I'm not going to do that. Let's be real, right? So they were, they were going to let, let it affect their finances. And by the way, these were people that were living in a newly built Jerusalem. It's not like they had a bunch of money. It's not like they had a lot of finances. It's not like they had a lot of physical things. But they were willing to let those things go. And that leads us directly into the third one. Y'all going to love this. I know you came to church today to hear this you ready thirdly the stewardship of resources get ready y'all about to get up and walk out here we go you ready i love the bible because like i said i'd never preach this passage but here we go verse 32 also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our god for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our Father's houses and the appointed times year by year. To, the, uh, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all, of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. To bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough that was their money, I'm just kidding. Our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priest, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our, of our God. To the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and the soil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers are. And we will not neglect the house of our God. That's a lot there. Their commitment was to steward their resources. The third element of the covenant was plainly this. The Israelites made a commitment to support the worship of God at the house of God. Consider these references to show their dedication to the house of God. Chapter 10, verse 32, for the service of the house of our God. Verse 33, for all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34, the house of our God. Verse 35, the house of the Lord. Verse 36, to the house 
of our God. Thirty, uh, also verse 36, who minister in the house of our God. Verse 37, the storerooms of the house of our God. Verse 38, in the house of our God. Verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. And every single verse in this passage from verse 32 down through verse 39, we see the commitment to the house of God. And this morning as we parallel this with our where we are today and what God has for us today in our local New Testament church, can I parallel this today that they showed commitment to their place of worship. They showed commitment to the house of their God. And while I understand we don't today meet in a Jewish temple, I understand today that it Things are different in the New Testament. I understand. But I believe there to be some obvious parallels that we can gather from this text this morning. This covenant was a commitment to the operation and mission of the house of God. The people made a commitment that they were going to be contributors to God's house. And that God's house would be operational due to their contributions. By the way, let let me remind you. God is worth our covenant promises because he is the God who has never broken his covenant to us. Notice the different ways that the children of Israel vowed to contribute to the house of God. There wasn't just one way. The first way was tangible resources. We noticed their grain, the fruit, the new wine. They were bringing in tangible things. For instance... Uh, Jeff's going to talk about in a little bit our Thanksgiving service. And man, at that next Sunday night, I want you to tangibly bring in some gifts. Some gifts of turkey, some gifts of ham. I'm personally bringing a gift of green bean casserole because God loves green bean casserole. All right, I'm bringing that. But this, these were like physical things that you could bring in. Hey, the church needed this, or this was a part of the tradition, and so we come and we bring this every year. Secondly, we saw their participation in scheduled or annual offerings. We try not to do this to you much. In fact, this past year we did it to you twice. We had one mission Sunday where uh, we had a missionary church planning family come in, and we asked you to give in that offering. And then we had a legacy offering in October that we asked you to give in that offering. And they were talking about here their, per, their commitment to participating in those annual offerings. But they also vowed to contribute in the tithes of their land. The first fruits, the tenth that comes off the top. And I'm not here this morning to discuss tithing in the Old Testament versus tithing in the New Testament. I'm actually not here today to preach to you about tithing. I'm simply here to highlight the overall obvious buy-in that these people had. There was no question. If you read verses 32 through 39, there was no question that they were all in. They were all in this thing. There was no question where their heart was. God's people made God's house go. God's people made God's house go. And can I say, present tense, God's people make God's house go. And it happens by generosity and financial commitment. You say, Josh, why are you preaching on money? Look, y'all know. We preach through the Bible. And when the Bible preaches on money... We preach on money. And when it doesn't, we shut up about it. And we don't preach on it. But consider these verses both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. A, a popular one that honestly I think some people kind of use as a whipping post sometimes. That's not my desire today. But bring all the tithes, especially the previous verses in Malachi 3. But bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Luke chapter 6 
Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or necessity. And by the way, whenever I speak of giving, I hope that that's what comes out. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly. I, I, I pray that you never interpret what I say up here uh, somewhat of, of anger, of some sort of grudge that that I were to have, or of necessity. I pray that we never get to the place where I have to come before our church and say, church, if we don't come up with seven grand this week, we can't function another month. I hope we never get there. God has blessed us tremendously. I hope that I never come up to you and and were to use uh, grudge or necessity as my means for giving. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. For fear of coming across health and wealth, I'm going to say this and move directly on. It seems that the verses in Scripture on giving are conditional verses. And God says... Give, and what? It's going to be given unto you. In fact, I believe the verses even say with what measure you give, that's how it's going to be given back. I'm going to leave there because I, I, this morning, I do not, it is not my goal, it is not my desire to try to legalistically blast you. But that same statement is made you know what, I'm going to try. I'll try. You know what, if we can figure it out, I'll try. I'm not sure if I can make, make it make sense in my budget. And I understand it. But let's take a look, closer look at one word that's used over and over again in the text. First fruits. I'm not, I'm not talking to you this morning about an amount. I'll tell you at the end something that's just from my heart. I'm not talking about amounts, but one word, first fruits. Now, I'm no incredibly smart person, but this would tell me that giving should be first. And so my mentality should not be, I'm going to go get my budget, and then if I have anything left over, I'll give some. What this means is that my priority is, God, I'm going to give first to your work, to the house of the Lord. And then I will make my budget fit under that. It's not that I'm going to look and see if I can fit God's house into my giving. It's the first thing to be taken care of. I'm going to look to see if I can afford the TV, that nice new vehicle with that nice new payment, that vacation. I'm going to look to see if I can afford that after my first fruits. After, I'm going to make sure that I truly believe Matthew chapter 6 and verse 23 that where my treasure is, there is my heart also. And I'm going to come to grips with the fact that I don't want to value my car payment over the house of the Lord. I mean, we've got, we have people in this church that generously are generous contributors who have cars with 200,000 miles on them out there. We've got, we have people who have, who do without some of the things that we all want to do because they want to place their value on the house of the Lord. And I'm just laying this out here today. I'm trying to be kind, but I'm trying to be pointed because, man, these these children of Israel here had nothing financially to give. And they're basically saying, we're going to give. But it doesn't make sense in your budget. I don't even know what a budget is right now. We don't have money. The city's not even rebuilt yet. We don't have the financial structure. But when it happens, we're prepared. 
Josh, this morning, are you telling us we should all give the same amount of money? Absolutely not. But Josh, this morning, are you saying we all should give? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's not one person that's here today that cannot be a part in some way. You say, well, Josh, honestly, I don't have any money. Okay, fine. I'm talking about f- five bucks. Like, don't, actually, 538. Is that what the grande cost at Starbucks? Like, one time, just skip your caramel macchiato. Like, once. And I'm, you say, Josh, does the church need my $5.38? Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. God has blessed us, by the way. You're going to find out in our financial, financials at the end of the year. We hit our, our savings goal for the year back in like August, September. And God has blessed our church. We brought on staff this year in the middle of the year. And we're still reaching our savings goal. This ain't about the church getting money. I promise you that. This is about where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. And you say, so Pastor Josh, what is your motive? Honestly, if you want to say that I have a motive today, it is that your heart would be drawn closer to Jesus Christ and to his church. That's my heart. So that when we announce an outreach event that we want to do in in, in the new year, that your heart is in it. That when we say, hey, Tim, we're going to do an Easter thing this year and it's going to require a lot more volunteers and we're going to do a lot more stuff, that you're like, my heart's in this. What, What can I do? My heart's here. I'm planted here. It's that when we say, hey, we got a mission trip opportunity coming up or, or, or we have an outreach that we want to do in the summertime, and, and it's, it's my heart's here. My heart's here. If there is, a, if there is such a thing as, as my thoughts in this, selfishly, that's my selfish thought. I'll be straight up with you. That's my selfish thought. Is that where your treasure is, there is your heart. My family, personally, and I grew up kind of old school, and that's okay. I'm all about that. We adopted the 10% rule of tithing. You say, why? I'll be honest with you, because my dad told me to when I was a kid, just to be real. And I'm not trying today here to legalistically push 10% tithing on you. I believe you can make a case for it biblically, and I believe you can also take some other verses and make a case not for it biblically. So, good luck. All right? But for, our, for my wife and for me, that's our standard of giving. It's 10% off the top. And by God's grace, he's allowed us to do more than that. But 10%, this is what I like about it. 10% is 10%. If I make $100 next week, 10% is 10%. If I make a million dollars next week, pray for me. If I make a million dollars next week, 10% is 10%. The story was told of, the, of a young man back, in, uh, back several decades ago in Dallas, Texas. W.A. Criswell was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, um, back when it, when it preached the gospel and, um, and was an amazing, amazing church. And he had a young man that came to him and was talking about giving. And the young man said, I only make um, $400, no, $40, $40 a week. It's way back. He said, okay, well, that'd be, if, you, if you'll commit to God, you'll get $4. And sure enough, that young man did. And he gave $4. He gave it. As time went by, he continued his 10%. Well, he, got a, he made it big. I think he was a lawyer or something. He made it really big. And I don't know what the number was. But he ended, wound up making like $5,000 a week or something crazy. And he went back to his pastor and he goes, Pastor, like, I'm not sure if I could do this. Like, I mean, $4 on $400 is one thing, but like, I'm making five k a week. And his pastor's like, well, let's, let's pray, son. And he got him down. He said, dear Lord, I want to pray for this young man's faith. I want you to do this, God. I don't want him to stop giving. So God, if it's be your will, would you take his salary back down to where he can give comfortably. God, $4 a week, would you take his salary down to that $40 so he can comfortably give that $4? And of course, the young man, now a little bit older, stopped him very quickly and said, no, 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 I think, I think we'll figure out that God can make this work. But the standard is this. If God can trust my 10%, then he can trust my 10%. That's the way I look at it. If God, if God, if I know that if God gives me 100, that I can make do with 90%, I, okay. You say, Josh, is that the standard that you want for my family? No, it's not. It really isn't. I'm telling you what we do. The widow in the New Testament gave, what, two mites? And if you convert that today, it's like a fraction of a penny. And what did Jesus say? She gave all she had. She gave it all. Hey, that's, that's some New Testament giving. 
Y'all, people want to claim why I don't do tithing? Cool. Do the widow's New Testament giving. 100%. All right, so do that. Good luck. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I heard one man say, yeah, I think New Testament giving is 50%. I'm like, oh, whoa, dude, my man, chill. He's like, yeah, the Bible says if you have a friend that needs a coat and you have two coats, you give him one. It's 50%. All right, bro, chill. All right, but, uh, but at the end of the day, you say, I'm, I can't give right now. And that's fine. I'm serious about that. But can I say this? I believe the Bible teaches that we're not missing out. The church is not missing out. But when you don't give, you, you are. You are missing out. And I don't know. I'm not going to get up here and say you're missing out on these blessings and that blessing. I'm not going to say that this morning. I'm just saying I believe the Bible tells you you're going to be blessed if you give. And you're missing out. Those blessings could be physical blessings. Those blessings could be financial blessings. Those blessings could be spiritual blessings. I, I don't know what they are. I'm not going to act like I know what God meant there. But if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. My friend, Pastor Dustin Moore, he's actually going to be here preaching for us in February. Um, I actually listen to his sermon podcast every week. Sometimes I have Kelsey listen to it with me. But he made the statement, God doesn't need your money, but God desperately wants your heart. God doesn't need your money, but he desperately wants your heart. And that is the principle and the core of Matthew 6, giving. And so the covenant was made to give. In verses 32 through 39, look, go back and read over it. Let it sink in all the different ways they were committing to give. But my question is, does God have your heart when it comes to your money? Does God have your heart when it comes to your money? God is worth our covenant promises because he is the God who has never broken his covenant to us. We mentioned those five major covenants in the Old Testament to begin today. Uh, those covenants that God made to his people. And he's never failed on those covenants. Never. He never failed. The last covenant that we mentioned was in Jeremiah 31 that was the new covenant that was the ushering in of the Messiah of Jesus that covenant came and lived on this sin-filled world on this earth on this ground in fact some good friends of mine right now are in the holy land as we speak On this earth, Jesus came and lived and he experienced all the temptation that you experience and that I experience. In fact, I would argue even more intense temptation than you or I. I've never been out in the desert for 40 days committing myself to a fast and have someone come offer me food. Done. I would even say that his temptation was even more severe than anything I've ever experienced. And he came and he lived a perfect life even though he was tempted many times over. He lived the life that you can't live and that I can't live, the perfect life. And you and I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the wages of sin or the payment or the penalty of our sin is death. And we deserved death. This is the new covenant. We deserve death. But Jesus, the one who came and lived the life that we could not live, he died the death that you deserve to die and that I deserve to die. He died a death on a cross. Listen this morning. There's no better picture of a true covenant than a holy God sending his holy son to die on the cross. And I'm not going to spoil a sermon that I may preach later, but when Jesus hung up on that cross and he said, I thirst... The soldiers thought he meant physically, and they put vinegar up there to taunt him even more. But he wasn't saying, I thirst for something physical. No, no, Jesus was saying, I thirst for that cup. You know the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that he said, please remove this cup from me? The cup of God's wrath? The cup of sin? He hung on that cross, and he said, God, 
I thirst. Give it to me. And he took your sin. He took my sin. And here we go, judgmental Christians. He took everybody else's sin. You know the bad ones? Everybody else's sins? He took those. The worst sin that you could think of. Jesus not only took it, but he became it on the cross. He became that sin so much that his holy father had to turn his back on his own son because he could not look upon the sin that he became. That is the gospel. That is the covenant that was made by God, that I will send my son, and that my son will be the sacrifice for your sin forever and for always. And my question today is, have you accepted the covenant that God made to any who would believe? And that is that he would save them, he would give them his spirit, he would give them an eternal home in heaven. You say, Josh, you talked about our response in the covenant. And yeah, you're right, Christians today, we should respond to our covenant-making God with our commitment and covenant to him in many different ways. In fact, we only went over three of them today. Like We could stay here, we could do like 27 more and make it 30 of things we could do to commit to God, right? That's not what this is about. This is about acknowledging the covenant that God would make to us. And just as the children of Israel here in Nehemiah chapter 10, that we would be willing to make commitments and covenants back to him. The first one being, I commit to you and I covenant to you my heart and my life and my eternity. Would you be my savior? I repent of my sin. I believe in Jesus. You say, Josh, I've been coming to church a long time. I, I just have a feeling that I agree with scripture when Jesus says, there's going to be people that say, Lord, I even cast out demons in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You say, but I've been coming to church. My daddy and my, my daddy was a deacon. He, he built this building. He didn't build this one. All right. So that's cool. You can't say that. We're not in those kind of churches. He, he laid the foundation, and my mom, she did this and that. Okay. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? But my grandmother was the most spiritual lady ever. Okay, but do you know Jesus as your Savior? But I mean, I started going to Baptist church when I was like seven. Okay, but do you know Jesus as your Savior? But I was raised Pentecostal, but do you know Jesus as your Savior? But I was raised Catholic, but do you know Jesus as your Savior? You don't understand... But do you know Jesus as your Savior? The great covenant maker, the one who cannot break his promise, a God who cannot lie has offered you salvation. That's the greatest covenant in the world. This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.church. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.